1: So here we are. Here we are and here we new. go. You've been status quo. Yeah. I wouldn't have had you down as a fan. Yeah. We're podcasting all over the world. That's us. Uh, a brand new podcast. It's very exciting. Cheerful Book Club. Uh, it, it's possible that you listened to some of the trial episodes we did yeah. at the back end of last year, uh, in the middle of last year. Um, and But here we are. It's the first proper episode. Thank you so much for finding us on this feed. And I think
2: we're doing a sort of public service, aren't we? The public service is that there's lots and lots of really interesting nonfiction books and we feel like sometimes they don't fit into a particular theme on reasons to be cheerful and so we wanted them to have a kind of space to breathe or we find out a bit about the author their ideas
1: uh, and and just generally have a chat about what the you know about their book yeah and then hopefully over time you'll be able to let us know what you think of these books and give us suggestions we do definitely for, want for to hear that back that from like people don't we from. yeah definitely and we've got
2: a new social malarkey thingy
1: we have you can find us on uh, twitter and facebook at we are cheerful and then on instagram at we are cheerful uk somebody's got we are cheerful already right we are cheerful we are i mean i'm not cheerful that somebody else got that no sort of username before us but otherwise we're fine now as ever with these things if you're a regular podcast listener to any podcast not just ours this probably drives you mad but we, we would like you to rate and review the episode and when we say rate and review we mean rate five and review five Out of five. Glowing reviews. If it's a ten, then ten. (laughs) Otherwise, save your ratings and reviews. Exactly. Review somebody else. The reason you hear podcast hosts begging you to do this is this is how they they go up the charts. It's not the number of downloads, it's the amount of people enthusing about it, and then that way other people will be able to find the podcast and join our book club. Yeah. I think we should say something about how we're selecting the books. Yeah, so I think our criteria are it's it's people with big ideas and people making the world better making the world better and stroke or thinking about the world we live in in an interesting way De- definitely and if people have got ideas for books we should feature they don't need
2: to be you know just about to be published because we'll we'll do some new books but you know a book that was published 6 months ago it's got really interesting things to say you know, the book club wasn't around then. Yeah, uh, we I mean, we struggled to, to do to
1: something sort of pre nineteen, what fifty. We got to make sure the authors probably, are still around. Yeah, probably. We don't want to be doing George Eliot, George
2: Orwell. <laughs> probably are out out out. But you know, are you there, George? Uh, you know, but,
1: tap once for you. Yes. But, but sort of beyond that, yeah, yeah, we're we're up for it, aren't we? But that's, that's what this is. It's Conversations with Authors. And this is the first episode proper. And uh, it's a conversation that I had a little while ago with uh, brilliant Financial Times journalist Rana Faruha. And it's about big tech. Don't be uh, evil, that's her That's right. Called. The book is Don't Be Evil, The Case Against Big Tech. So already we're on episode one. We risk enraging Zuckerberg, Bezos. They might come for us. Coming for you. Yeah, you're, you're wa- washing your hands of it. Yep. Yeah. Hello to my guest for this episode of the Cheerful Book Club, Rana Faruha. Hello, hello. Uh, the The book is tremendous. It's called "Don't Be Evil: The Case Against Big Tech," uh, and as I say, it's it's excellent. But I am slightly worried for you. <laughs> in that, are you not worried that one of these guys, like I mean, let's pick one at random, Elon Musk, is going to have, have you disappeared? <laughs> I mean, he could shoot you into space.
3: You know, I was stunned. Actually, I. I... I don't know if Jeff Bezos actually thinks about me, but just the opposite has happened. Amazon has put the book on its top 20 best nonfiction of the month and... I recently got an op-ed put into the Washington Post, which he owns. So I'm now getting super paranoid. I'm kind of like, oh, it's a strategy. Yes.
1: You know? yeah. yeah, it is. It's them saying... <laughs> Meanwhile, look, he
3: has no idea who I am.
1: <laughs> <laughs> think this is them saying, oh, we're not evil. Look, we Yeah, exactly. exactly. We're- and then then I'm like, to-
3: why is Amazon doing that? Why is it not Google? I don't know.
1: <laughs> Do you think... I don't know if you know, there's a, there's a famous Mitchell and Webb sketch over here where they're playing uh, Nazi soldiers mm. in, I think, the trenches. And, and one turns to the other and says... You don't think we're the bad guys, do you? <laughs> and- I
3: was wondering, is is there a sense of that, do you think, in Silicon Valley? Well, there's definitely a community of recovering techies now. And in fact, one of them was quite a big source on my book. There's this guy, Tristan Harris, um, who started something called the Center for Humane Technology. And he is the former uh, ethics officer of Google. And he worked there until he decided Google had no ethics. And then he had to go outside and found this group where they're now having tons of refugees come from Facebook, Google and all these companies and then try and figure out how to fix this stuff.
1: So they're almost like these people who defect from the Scientologists. Order.
3: In, indeed. <laughs> right. Indeed. Yeah. No. And they're, they're amazing. But you know the truth of the matter is they... They think that they can create these sort of um, new kinds of apps or, you know, make the tweaks to the handset. I don't know. I think this is a political economy question. I think this is really about kind of capitalism in some ways. It's not about how you tweak your Android handset.
1: Well, let, let's start with how you begin the book. It, it, there's a, the story that, I mean, it basically involves your son defrauding you. <laughs>
3: You know, I told Alex, was my son who's now 13, he said, Mommy, I don't want to be in this book. I'm like, you're going to be in this. This is your college fund. You're in this book, and this is your punishment for spending $900 in a football video game, which is how I got interested in writing the book. Came home one day, um, opened a credit card bill, and I noticed all these tiny charges, $1.99, $5 here. And so I start tallying them all up, and they're all from the App Store. And I think, I can't have bought that much music. What's going on? Tally them up. is over $900. And then I think, who else has my password? Alex, my then 10-year-old. So I go downstairs and start kind of interviewing him about this and just pulling him away from the phone, for mm-hmm. starters, is quite a challenge. And it turns out he has been offered one of these free games – free, in quotation marks, free games – And these games use something called persuasive technology. It comes out of the Stanford persuasive technology lab, very Orwellian sounding, um, to pull you through the game and then sell you stuff. So you click on new kid or you click on virtual Ronaldo or whatever and you're buying, buying, buying. You don't really realize it. And pretty soon there's, you know, the the algorithms are studying you while you're doing this. So they're developing a picture of what you want, when you're going to want it and, $900 $900 later, there you are.
1: Well, Apple is interesting. I mean, because that's the one that, in a way, inspired you to start writing about this book. Mm. But I, I think of them as less evil because yeah. data isn't really their thing. I can see, see you pulling a bit of a face at that. Mm. Is is there a hierarchy of evil?
3: Well, it's funny. I, I, a couple of people have asked me that. It depends on where you think the evil comes from. So some people think, and, and I would agree with this largely, that the targeted advertising business model is really the fundamental evil, right? And that's the idea of, all right, these firms, Facebook and Google, uh, typically follow us around, harvest our data, and then create algorithms that literally tell us what we want, give us more of that. And then they monitor. It's just incredible. They keep making money, making money in this vicious circle. That's also the model that gives you the kind of political polarization that we've seen in the sense that when you click on cats, you get more cat videos. But when you click on right-wing hate, you also get more of that. And so you get pulled down. Although into I will these-
1: say from seeing the behavior of some of my relatives on Facebook, there it does seem to be an overlap between those two things. <laughs> <laughs>
3: think of (laughs) cats as being more progressive but i don't know maybe i'm wrong (laughs) um but so that i guess you know that probably is the ultimate evil but frankly um a company like apple i mean apple is holding about 10 percent of all of america's liquid corporate wealth and the largest chunk of that is in offshore bank accounts so you think about what makes apple um so profitable it's pretty much stuff that taxpayers paid for it's the internet GPS, touchscreen, this is all stuff that came out of the Pentagon, actually,
1: Right. Yes. you know,
3: and so they're monitored. And it, it, this is another thing that drives me crazy. People like Tim Cook will get up and say, you know, if we had better education in America, there'd be we wouldn't see so much disintermediation of jobs by technology. And I'm like, you're putting all the tax money in the Netherlands like how can we, we we need that to actually reform education so there's a deep hypocrisy and
1: what is that cognitive dissonance with these people who th- th- whatever your stereotype of a fat cat is yeah yeah they don't seem like that they seem more hippy dippy california peace and love, you know, they yeah. all get very excited when the Beatles goes onto <laughs> iTunes or, you know, they they seem like the sort of people who'd be queuing up to endorse a, a progressive candidate. Yeah. So well, what, what is the cognitive dissonance you think that goes on?
3: There's that, a real mythology about the Valley that it's liberal, you know, meaning kind of democratic and progressive. I mean, I guess probably if you tallied up with the way most people vote, that would be the truth. But really, they're libertarian. You know, it's the, and, and these folks grew up in an age. I mean, think about it. Most of them came of age in the 80s onwards. So Reagan Thatcher revolution, governments are only good for cutting taxes. Um, greed is good. So that's, that's where their hearts are, I think.
1: Right. Um, on the data thing, what, what is baffling to me is that there's no, these companies aren't selling an end product. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. is it's, it's data as valuable yeah. as we all think it is?
3: It is. Or we've, and- we've
1: let the world believe it is.
3: No it is. It really is. I mean, one, you know, aside from my my son um <laughs> racking up these 900 dollars in video game charges, um which by the way, he, we made him make a lot of that back with a lemonade stand. So I wanted to right. get very real and you can clear a lot of money in Park Slope, Brooklyn on a hot day <laughs> with a lemonade stand. Let me tell you. Um but uh it, there's it, it's interesting. I mean, these these firms um they are selling us back to ourselves. I mean, we really are in the matrix here. Yeah. And what's interesting and very worrisome is that it's coming out not just of the FANG firms now, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google. It's moving into every other area of the economy. So look at the way in which Google and Amazon are moving into healthcare look at the way in which they're moving into finance. Um already there are a lot of other companies that you might not think of like Starbucks for example knows a lot about you. Johnson and Johnson knows a lot about you. So surveillance capitalism, which is what um Shoshana Zuboff would call it, yeah. is becoming the business model for everyone. The,
1: the the other side so if we split it if we split it into two just briefly the the advertising side i guess an argument that i have sometimes made and i I realize there's an amount of privilege that goes along with this but if i'm walking down the street i'm going to see an advert on the side of a bus i'm going to see an advert on the side of a bus shelter somebody's carrying a bag it's got an advert on it i'll go into the Mm. supermarket there are you know signs advertising things to me everywhere i'm i'm all there's already a lot of noise trying to sell me things yes isn't it better that it's being refined so that advertisers money isn't being wasted Hmm. Selling things to people who are never going to buy them in the first place. <laughs> well, and also that I, I might see an advert for something that I might actually want.
3: Well, you could look at it that way. And certainly the advertisers would look at it that way, which, by the way, is one reason that we haven't seen more business pushback against the fangs. So b- businesses in other industries have made a real Faustian bargain. Amazon can come in overnight as we've seen in the grocery business and disrupt an entire industry. Uber can come in overnight and disrupt an entire industry. This will happen, but the businesses themselves who should have been lobbying in their various capitals about at least having an even playing field haven't done that because of exactly what you say. The advertising is so much better for them and they can reduce their marketing budgets and really really target almost like a drone strike, you know, down to the the millimeter the people that they want to meet. But then think about what that does to society as a whole. You and I might go on Google and see ads for jet skis popping up. People with a different socioeconomic profile will see advertisements for predatory um, lending Loans, or, yeah, yeah. or, you know, uh, for-profit colleges that are going to take their money and not give them a degree. Let's talk about that
1: other side of the, the, uh, the surveillance capitalism side. Um, so, so, Tell me a little bit about how it comes into play with something like if you're trying to get insurance and Mm. the way that algorithms are able to look at your online behavior and then share that information with them. When have have I given my permission for my behavior to be shared with somebody who's deciding whether or not to give me a a health insurance policy?
3: Well, you may not know how many, I mean, whether or not you've given your permission just to whatever consumer platform you're interacting with, say, Facebook, they may well be sharing your information with hundreds of different apps and providers and financial services companies, and and the insurance business is a really interesting one. I was horrified a couple of years ago. I was in Davos, and I had an interview with the head of Zurich Financial. We Can were, I just pause you for a second? Yeah. Is I mean, it? I mean, what's it like? Oh, Davos. It's, yeah. Um. Tiny food. Uh, well <laughs> so like shrunken versions of things, yeah. right? Actually, I had a friend who had the best blog ever. It was called Davos Tiny Food. And he just went around to the parties and took <laughs> like super tiny ice cream cones, like that. Um, it's a weird, it's a weird bubble world. I mean, you find yourself kind of in the co check with Henry Kissinger. <laughs> yeah. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, anyway, so I was talking to the head of Zurich Financial. And we were on a panel about how digital technology was going to gonna transform every industry, and he told me something fascinating. He said that se- the insurance business is already putting sensors in people's cars, in people's homes. So I live in a brownstone in Park Slope, Brooklyn, 1901. If I were to, say, put allow my insurance company to put sensors in my pipes or by my furnace or on the sidewalk to show that I'm shoveling my snow or I'm taking care of my plumbing – I might get a discount, but they might also smell that my 17-year-old is smoking weed in her bedroom and give me a downgrade because right. she's a fire hazard. So, all right, that's kind of creepy. Maybe it turns out to be a net benefit for me, maybe not. But what it does is it disrupts the entire model of something that used to be about kind of collectivism, right, risk pooling. Suddenly, it separates you and I. Back to your point about the the targeted advertising, it separates us. Into um, you know, kind of like an episode of Black Mirror. Into who is who gets a like and who can be insured and who's going to get a promotion, and people who are in some other bucket, kind of a junk bond bucket, which PS is probably going to have to be underwritten by the government at some stage. You know, in the same way that oh yeah, Walmart employs a lot of people, but many of them are on public benefits, which is why they can you know they're working at Walmart. Uh, That's going to be the same in a lot of other industries if we're not careful.
1: And and you've written that some of these businesses are at a point where they're they're kind of too big to fail.
3: I think so. I mean, just in a sheer financial sense, they're holding about 80% of the world's corporate wealth. 10% of companies, the ones that have the most data, have 80% of the wealth. Um, These companies – and since the 2008 crisis, a lot of money flowed from Wall Street into tech. 2007 was the advent of the the Apple um, iPhone. That's when you really saw app technology take off. These companies became hugely wealthy. They put all that money into offshore bank accounts. So there's this incredible arbitrage going on and in some ways, um not to get too wonky here, but that's kind of what I do, uh, <laughs> but that it represents the apex of a kind of neoliberal economic paradigm, globalization as we've known it, where capital and now data can fly wherever it, they want to go, usually where it's most, um, you know, where labor's cheapest or where taxes are lowest. And yet individuals and governments are left to deal with the problems that that creates on the ground.
1: Well, that's something I, I wanted to ask you about, about what kind of sway these companies now have yeah. in government? or And then maybe we can then go on to how imp- how how much really that matters to them if they consider themselves ab- above government. You've got this fact that I think it's Google has a building to house its lobbyists in Washington that is bigger than the actual White House. <laughs>
3: that's true. That, that's absolutely true. And there's so many of them running around. They had the most meetings during the Obama administration of any company. I mean, they were pretty much embedded in the White House. And you just look now in the same way that there was a revolving door between Goldman Sachs and Treasury, there's now a revolving door between any number of regulatory bodies and senators office, offices in Google and Facebook. So. Which is really weird. I remember actually speaking of Davos again, I remember being in a, in a, a van um, going off to some meeting with an Indian CEO and he was saying, you know, you people come and criticize the way emerging markets run their And then you you have these 10, last 10 treasury secretaries worked at Goldman Sachs afterwards. You yeah, know? So yeah, yeah. It, it's just such a hypocrisy.
1: So, So typically, what do they want from government? Is it less regulation?
3: Yes, which they've had almost no regulation. And and one of the biggest areas that I think we're going to see a fight in is in 1996, when the industry was really starting and these companies were kind of in garages still, there was a, a loophole carve out um, that was made. It's uh, called CDA 230, a very wonky thing, um, part of the Communications Decency Act, which allowed platforms to not be liable for anything that anyone does or says. So that's why... You can have things like the Christchurch massacres that are then played and monetized by a company like Facebook, and that is not a legal issue. you know. Whereas we know from working in traditional media, if you print something defamatory or libelous in the FT, you're liable, the paper is liable. There needs to be at least an even playing field. I know it's going to be difficult to police the internet. I know that we don't want Mark Zuckerberg to be the minister of truth and decide what should be censored or not but we need just an even playing field between the old line and the new line players. And
1: do you think the efforts made so uh, so far aren't much more than sort of PR jobs?
3: Uh, absolutely. And you see that, you know, they fight them tooth and nail. I mean, there was a terrible story in the US of a company called Backpage.com, which was doing um, online sex trafficking of children, basically. And it was being, in its legal battle for a period of time, backed by industry groups for which the largest Players are, you know, are part because they, they were looking at it as a civil liberty issue. Like they shouldn't have to police this stuff because we don't want censorship on the internet. But really it was about we're going to back even this egregious thing because we don't want to open up the opportunity for this loophole, which is hugely profitable to be rolled back. And if you think about it, the valuations of these companies depend entirely on a being unregulated. And B, being able to go globally wherever they want to go. And and just as you said- Which is going to change too, by the way.
1: Oh, tell me more about that then.
3: Well, so I think we're headed towards kind of a tripolar world where the US, Europe and Asia go different directions in terms of how they're going to regulate the internet, who's going to be led. Just look at China, right? China already has its own fangs, you know, Alibaba, Tencent, Baidu. So. They've got their big tech players. So a company like Amazon can't even get into China. Google and Facebook have like marginal pres- presences, but um, China will have its own ecosystem. And if you want to see where a surveillance state can go, look at what's happened in China. So there's now a system of social credit there, where the government, of course, no privacy debate. Government can see anything that you do or say online. If you're doing and saying right thinking things, you might get that second property or get that promotion at work. If you're not, you might not have access to pension or healthcare. I mean, it is really a whole new way of controlling a population and it's being used for human uh, rights repression in Western China with the Muslim minorities there. So, um, that's one system. I think Europe, may craft another, and I'm, I'm actually, Hopeful about the debate that's happening in Europe. Um, is this is sort of like
1: off the back of GDPR and and looking at some of uh, the tax arrangements of these these yeah, giants. Well,
3: well, the tax situation for for sure. Also, um, Margaret Vestager, the uh, European Competition Commissioner, who was you know, enemy number one for for Jeff Bezos and company, is saying, "Hey, if there are competition problems, let's put the burden of proof on the big companies. Let's not make these tiny companies that can't afford to hi- hire lawyers responsible for this." So that's point number two. Point number three, and this is crucial, is the idea of a public data bank. So if data is the new oil, you, you we, the workers, uh, the cons- I would say consumers, but I prefer to think of us as workers that are giving this labor for free, should be getting some of that value. It should be taxed properly. It should be equally accessed by different players. You can't just have one company coming in and ring fencing all this stuff.
1: Can we talk uh, on on the scale of things? Because some astonishing stats you've got here. So ninety percent of all searches are on Google. Ninety mm-hmm. percent uh, of uh, adult internet users over thirty are on Facebook. All but one percent of the world's smartphones use either Google or Apple. About half of all e-commerce in in the United States is Amazon. The, the, the sort of market logic would be, well, if you've got something better, it can come and you know tip the other things over mm. in no time, disrupt in no time, like uh, Facebook did with MySpace or Bebo. What are these companies doing that prevent that from happening?
3: Well, so I think they're natural monopolies. And it, it's interesting, if you go back, sometimes all you have to do is the reading, but nobody does any reading anymore because <laughs> we're all tweeting. <laughs> you know But um, if you go back and read some of the early economic work by, for example, Hal Varian, who's the chief... Economist for Google. Um, they said in their early work look, the nature of these platform firms is that they will be monopolies. They will come in kind of like a 19th century railroad. And build an entire network. And then naturally, they can own the cars on that network, they can own the thing that goes in the oil or the coal or the grains, in this case, it's data, but they can own that entire thing. And so they are natural monopolies. And at some point, you have to probably break them up, treat them like utilities, which I think that kind of regulation is coming down the pike. And there's
1: there's some appetite for that in the uh, Democratic
3: there is. Uh, candidates,
1: Elizabeth Warren especially. Elizabeth
3: Warren, you know, break them up is more a slogan than a solution, but there are thoughtful people who are saying the model is the 19th century railroad model. And also there's a precedent for that in banking because you can't, there are limitations on say, if you're a trading platform, you can't own all of the commodity that you're trading, for example. So it's not like there's not a roadmap here.
1: and And a lot of the, stuff you've written in the in the past has been about finance and, the, and that world of business mm. how s- similar or, or what parallels do you see with big tech uh, you must get asked yeah, this a, a yeah. lot but um no
3: that's a really interesting question um i think they are the big tech is far more rapacious and also far more insidious than wall street in the sense that the you know the guys on the street are pretty much who they are you know they could be Trading commodities or trading fish, they just want to make their money and go home. And also, they tend to play fairly straight by their own rules with the media. Now, what I mean by that is, you know, when I – I remember the last time I wrote something that Jamie Dimon didn't like, he called me up and just like screamed at me on the phone personally, fair enough, you know. These guys, the heads of Google, the heads of Facebook, they go behind the scenes. You know, they call your boss. They buy out the academics. They seem so nice. They get up on Capitol Hill and say, well, we just couldn't possibly have known. They're wearing T-shirts. They're wearing <laughs> black turtle sneakers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly um they are the sharpest elbowed operators in town That's believe sad. me they will try and get you fired they will cut you cold actually one of the things i found when i was reporting my book there is an omerta code in the valley and it is so difficult to get people even who have been completely wronged by the top firms to speak about it because you will never eat lunch in that town again if you do
1: right the end of the book, you get into solutions. Yeah, can you talk to us a little bit about that? I mean, what what would you like to see I, done?
3: Well, for starters, a proper narrative, which hopefully the book will will provide something of that. Um, I think that some of the things that California is doing are really interesting, actually. So, California is the birthplace of so many of these firms, but they're also ahead on thinking about it. I think, arguably, even more ahead than Europe. So, recently. Um, the governor of, of California, uh, Gavin Newsom, floated the idea of a digital dividend. So again, if you think about data as a resource, then it should be taxed and some of the value should go back into the public sphere. So there's talk about possibly having a digital sovereign wealth fund where the companies would in some way have to give back some of this value, and then that would be used to enrich the larger ecosystem, healthcare pensions, infrastructure, whatever – And very, very easy, uh, model again, Norway.
1: So, yeah. So if data's the new oil, you do what Norway did with the North, North Sea oil. Exactly.
3: And, you know, even Alaska and Wyoming states in the, in, in the U.S. have done that too. So, um, I think we're headed that direction. I think we're going to see that 19th century style breakup of networks, uh, and commerce. Um, uh, frankly, I, I think we've got to get money out of politics, too. I mean, these companies are the biggest lobbyists, not only in Washington, but in Brussels now, and they are just blanketing these places with money. Well, that
1: was something I meant to come back to. Mm. How much do they see themselves as, as above government? You know, if they get called, say, a Congress hearing or the EU Parliament, yeah, know, how seriously are they? Taking that stuff because it's very difficult for all these different countries to think and tax in a joined up way. Yes. Um, yeah. So, so how much does it, do national governments matter to them?
3: Well, I think in the past, not so much, but that's because they've been the apex of globalization as we've known it until Trump, until Brexit, until, you know, maybe the financial crisis was the turning point. Um, they've been able to just go where they want, do what they want, and not think that much about national governments. But it's a whole new world now. And I actually think that. Both geopolitics and consumer trends are going to favor more regulation and more public involvement because you really do have China now saying, we're going to have our own ecosystem. We're we're going to play our own way. So we're not resetting back to the 90s. You have uh, individual nation states thinking more about welfare. You know, you've had in the last 40 years, globalization has decreased global inequality, but it's increased in-country inequality. And these firms could potentially put that on steroids if we don't make the right policy decisions. And and the
1: people, you know, we, we know the names, Larry Pages, yeah, Jeff yeah. Bezos, uh, 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 Tim Cook. Like, if you've got all the money in the world... Mm what What do you think you're doing? Do you think you're creating a utopia? Do you think they, on some level have got lofty ideas that they're making something better than the democracies that we live in?
3: oh, i I think they do. I think they do. It's interesting. and i would I would kind of say there's an analogy to Wall Street there because when financiers get really, really rich, they become philosophers, right? Like right. Ray, Ray Dalio, George Soros. I mean, they come up literally with philosophies. These guys are like that too. Um, and they really think they're doing God's work which makes them
1: terrifying, terrifying. <laughs> yeah. yes, delusional exactly. and delusional. terrifying uh, uh the, the podcast uh, is called cheerful book club so we, we always like to finish by uh, asking you to give us something to feel cheerful about and you know looking at the tech world yeah. it, it can feel dystopian what what gives you cheer
3: wow um well both my kids now know how to code <laughs> <laughs> they'll never be unemployed i guess <laughs>
1: until ai learns to do that exactly yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Uh, rana thank you so much for talking to us
3: thank
0: you cheerful book club is produced by emma korsham and joel pierce for cheerful productions in association with goldfish london support for cheerful book club comes from vintage read boldly think differently follow at vintage books for more so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil.